evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau invokes emergency powers to deal with the Freedom Convoy. At the same time, Ontario announces an end date to its vaccine passport requirement. The U.S. is closing its embassy in Kiev, citing the threat of Russian invasion. That's as residents of the Ukrainian capital say they are refusing to panic. The Hillary Clinton campaign allegedly paid an internet company to infiltrate servers at the Trump Tower and the White House. This is according to a new court filing by U.S. Special Prosecutor John Durham's office. A 35-year-old woman stabbed to death in her own apartment in New York City's Chinatown. The suspected murderer walked behind her all the way to her apartment and then made his way inside. And the LA Rams win the Super Bowl, but the game and halftime show aren't the only highlights. Celebrities and fans violate the mask mandate, drawing an outpouring of criticism. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau today invokes the Emergencies Act to deal with the Freedom Convoy protests. It's the successor of the War Measures Act and gives the federal government extraordinary powers. The federal government has invoked the Emergencies Act to supplement provincial and territorial capacity to address the blockades and occupations. I want to be very clear. The scope of these measures will be time-limited, geographically targeted, as well as reasonable and proportionate to the threats they are meant to address. Trudeau says the police will be given more tools to impose fines and imprison protesters who block roads and infrastructure. Banks can regulate and restrict funds that support blockades. Drivers who use their trucks in blockades will have their corporate bank accounts frozen and their vehicle insurance suspended. The government will also target the crowdfunding services and payment systems that the protesters use. Trudeau says he's not calling in the military. The War Measure Act has only been used three times in Canadian history, during the two world wars and during the Quebec separatist movement in 1970. Four provincial premiers said earlier today that they disagree with Trudeau invoking the act on a national level. And staying in Canada, Ontario is speeding up its plan to remove pandemic restrictions amid the truckers' protests. The vaccine passport system will be gone on March 1st, but the premier insists the decisions are not because of the protests. NTD's Alison Lee has the latest. Ontario Premier Doug Ford announced Monday that beginning Thursday the 17th, the province will remove all capacity limits except for sporting events, concert venues and theatres. Capacity limits for organized public events will increase to 50 people indoors with no limits outdoors. And on March 1st, the government will drop more restrictions. Effective March the 1st, we intend to eliminate capacity limits in all indoor public settings. At the same time, and at the recommendation of Dr. Moore, we will lift proof of vaccination requirements for all settings. The Premier says the mask mandate needs to remain in place for a bit longer. He insists that the decision to fast-track the reopening plan is not because of the Freedom Convoy, but despite it. Over the weekend, Ontario police made arrests and towed some vehicles near the border crossing between Detroit and Windsor, Ontario. The Ambassador Bridge reopened to traffic by Sunday night after being blocked for six days. To those of you who are there with the sole objective of causing disruption and chaos, there'll be serious consequences for this lawless activity. We will continue to raise the consequences against those who are holding millions of jobs and people hostage. Ford warns that protesters who create chaos using vehicles will have their vehicles seized and their license revoked. Meanwhile, TD Bank is freezing several accounts connected to the Freedom Convoy. The accounts received around 1.1 million Canadian dollars in donations to support the protests. That's around 860,000 U.S. dollars. Most of the money went through GoFundMe.
The bank appealed to court to obtain the funds. They say they intend to return them to the donors. A legal group representing the protesters said that there are significant questions surrounding the legal basis under which TD Bank seized donation funds and applied to transfer them into court. Allison Lee, NTD News. And on Sunday, an organization echoing the Canadian truckers announced a plan for their route from California to Washington, D.C. The route begins in Southern California. In a live streamed message on Facebook, the People's Convoy announced they are in Los Angeles and are scouting a place to start a convoy to end the Emergency Powers Act. The goal is to lift all mandates related to the CCP virus, also known as COVID-19. The group is doing a final round of planning and meetings to kick off. It's for the American people, not the trucker. It's just the truckers that are taking a stand. They plan to start from Southern California, then pass through Las Vegas, Arizona, Oklahoma City, St. Louis, and finally Washington, D.C. The group has been updating the public through Facebook, Telegram, and TikTok. They are made up of 29 co-organizers and state groups. They urge anyone with a vehicle, not just trucks, to join them. They hope to meet with state leaders at each stop. The People's Convoy are planning a rally in Coachella Valley in Indio, California on March 4th and 5th. Eileen Ang, NTD News, California. The U.S. is closing its embassy in Kiev, citing the threat of Russian invasion. And the Ukrainian president is declaring a day of unity. We have taken the prudent steps of updating the travel advisory for Ukraine to urge U.S. citizens to leave Ukraine immediately using any available mode of transportation. And now, most recently, as you saw just a little bit ago, uh, we are in the process of relocating our diplomatic staff from Kyiv to Lviv. Officials had previously ordered all American citizens and U.S. government employees in the country to leave, but a small group of diplomatic professionals remained. Those workers will be temporarily relocated to western Ukraine to be further away from where Russian troops are amassing on the country's borders. The State Department says the decision was made to protect the staff's safety. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he still hopes to resolve the dispute diplomatically. The Biden administration is planning to offer Ukraine up to $1 billion in a sovereign loan as part of a package to support the country's economy. And Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky declared today that Wednesday, February 16th, will be a day of unity. Zelensky was addressing concerns and reports that say a Russian invasion could begin on that day. And despite Russia's military buildup and warning from the west of an imminent invasion, many residents of the Ukrainian capital say they're refusing to panic. Although some say they are making emergency preparations. One Ukrainian political scientist says people should be prepared for anything. Antidi's Anna Varava has more from Kiev. Some Western nations have warned that Moscow is preparing for military action. U.S. saying Russia could begin with aerial bombardments at any time. Vadim Karasyov, Ukrainian political scientist and director of the Institute for Global Strategies, believes that one must be prepared for the development of any event, including a military invasion. There is a real threat of invasion. If not the invasion of the whole of Ukraine, then the Ukrainian-controlled territories of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. He says that Russia may even use pinpoint missile strikes. If there is such a scenario, then it will likely be pinpoint missile strikes on the general staff, on the Ministry of Defense and on critical infrastructure, as well as cyber attacks and power outages in Kiev. Also the disconnection of communications in Ukraine, such as mobile and social networks. This can create panic and a collapse in the markets, the foreign exchange market. We see that today the Ukrainian currency is already going down. There will not be massive attacks such as those during the Second World War in the style of total war. At the same time, the U.S. is promising to provide macro-financial assistance to Ukraine. That's according to Ukrainian Minister of Foreign Affairs Dmitry Kuleba after negotiations with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Also, finance ministers of G7 countries on Monday said they were ready to impose tough sanctions on the Russian Federation in the event of a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Meanwhile, Ukrainians are reacting differently to the possibility of Russian aggression. I don't think about it at all. Let them figure it out on their own. It's their business. There is no need to panic. You need to remain calm. 
We have military members who have been standing on the border for years. I don't want to believe it, but we must be prepared for anything. You can't rule out anything, because we're dealing with a psychopath first and foremost. This is a person generally devoid of empathy. You can even see it in his facial expressions. And of course, Putin can go for anything. Ukrainians are already tired of being afraid. There is no panic. There is a healthy, pragmatic calmness. People buy some necessary supplies, necessary medicines, go to physical training and so on. And this is good. Because for the aggressor, the most important thing is to trigger panic. I don't think there will be an invasion. This is all just to make us afraid through provocation. We are laborers' people, the same Slavic brothers. What kind of war? There is enough war in this country. The invasion has already happened. Will Kiev be bombed? I think not, because they do not have such forces, or I think, intentions. I'm very worried. I'm worried about the children, but I hope that everything will be fine. We are getting ready, and just in case, we have collected an emergency kit, but we hope everything will be fine. We hope that the alarm raised by the public will allow us to avoid this difficult situation. Reporting by Anna Varava, NTD News, Kiev. U.S. government funding runs out in just four days. The Senate must act again to prevent a government shutdown. But one Republican senator is putting this pressing matter on hold in an effort to force the Biden administration to make sure tax dollars don't pay for drug paraphernalia. A few more senators are also taking action. NTD's Melina Weiskopf has more. $30 million, that's how much President Biden set aside from his American Rescue Plan to help stop drug abuse. Last year, we saw a record number of overdose deaths, more than 100,000. To address the growing problem, Health and Human Services is giving grants to community programs to help prevent overdoses, educate drug users, and mitigate disease and infection that are side effects of using drugs. The money will also be used to pay for supplies like syringes and smoking kits. This has raised eyebrows from a few Republican senators who suspect the administration is using tax dollars to supply crack pipes to drug users. But the White House has rejected this. The statement makes clear uh, that we don't support federal funding indirect or direct for pipes. Uh, this program, though, is focused on harm reduction strategies, including prioritizing the use of fentanyl test strips and clean syringes, and all of these harm reduction services. Blackburn has put a hold on the temporary funding bill, asking the Health and Human Services to clarify that tax dollars won't be used to distribute drug paraphernalia. Senators Rubio and Manchin are taking action, too. They introduced the Pipes Act to ban tax dollars for drug paraphernalia, including syringes, unless there is a significant risk of infection. While the two senators' bill is a long-term approach, Senator Blackburn's move puts pressure on the administration to move quickly to avoid a government shutdown this week. Senator Blackburn wants the Health and Human Services to reissue that grant money and exclude drug paraphernalia before she lifts that hold on the government funding bill. So that gives the Health and Human Services until the end of the week to take action with a potential for a government shutdown looming in the background if Senator Blackburn refuses to give ground on this. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Special counsel John Durham's team alleged Friday that Hillary Clinton's campaign paid a tech company to spy on former President Donald Trump's residences and the White House when Trump was president. According to the court filings by Durham, lawyers for the Clinton campaign allegedly paid a technology executive and his associates to infiltrate servers at Trump Tower and at the White House, with the goal being to establish an inference and a narrative to tie Trump to the Russian government. Republican Congressman Jim Jordan weighed in on the allegations on Fox's America's Newsroom. They spied on a presidential campaign. That's as wrong as it gets. But then we found out from this filing that they actually spied on a sitting president, which is even worse. So uh, this, is, this, is, this is just simply as wrong as it can possibly be. Thank goodness that uh, Mike Turner is, is exactly right. We do need to investigate this stuff. Durham made the claim as part of his investigation that had brought charges against Michael Sussman, who was a lawyer that had worked on behalf of the Democratic National Committee in the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016. Sussman is currently charged with making a false statement to the FBI. Durham said in his filing that Sussman gathered and conveyed the allegations of ties between Trump and the Russian government to the FBI on behalf of at least two clients, 
a technology executive at a U.S.-based internet company in the Clinton campaign. Billing records reflect that Sussman repeatedly billed the Clinton campaign for his work on the Russian bank allegations. Durham also said that an unnamed tech executive and his associates mined the White House domain system traffic and other data in order to gather derogatory information about Donald Trump. Sussman previously pleaded not guilty and accused Durham of acting in a politically motivated manner. Trump issued a statement about Durham's filing saying, quote, This is a scandal far greater in scope and magnitude than Watergate. While interviewed by Fox & Friends co-host Steve Ducey, former Deputy National Security Advisor KT McFarland said that mainstream media outlets are avoiding the latest Durham allegations because, quote, they were all in on it. They were the ones that did Russia, Russia, Russia. I mean, they destroyed my career, my reputation, um, cost me, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees with the Mueller investigation. So the media, they don't want to touch this because they're complicit in it. Durham was appointed to investigate the origins of the FBI investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election and to determine if intelligence collection into the Trump campaign was, quote, lawful and appropriate. A 35-year-old woman was murdered early Sunday morning inside her apartment in New York's Chinatown. The suspect, who is now in custody, allegedly followed her home at around 4 in the morning. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. Christina Yuna Lee was senior digital producer for music-making company Splice. Very early Sunday morning, while she was walking home in Manhattan's Chinatown, Lee was followed all the way to her apartment on the sixth floor of this building. At around 4.20 a.m., police responded to a 911 call and arrived at the scene. The suspected killer first tried to flee down the fire escape, then barricaded himself inside the apartment where he was later arrested. Police found Lee stabbed to death in the bathtub of her apartment. Concerned citizens of East Broadway held a vigil for Lee and called on New York City's elected officials to help Chinatown. Some members of the community are upset about the number of homeless shelters in Chinatown. Chinatown already have five existing shelters, and the city is putting three more in our neighborhood. We don't oppose a shelter, but this is not like fairly distributed. Entire New York City should all come together and help the homeless individuals. Shelter need to be spread fairly. That's what I'm asking for, what we are asking for. You cannot just dump all the shelters in Chinatown. That's not fair. Some women at the rally said the senseless murder of a young woman really touches close to home. And so why did you come down here today? Because when I read the news, my heart broke, and I just felt compelled to come. The woman is of a similar age, and what happened to her is something that haunts my dreams, my reality, theoretically, all the time. I fear all the time. I don't feel safe. I'm, I'm scared to take the subway. I'm scared to walk down the street at night by myself. How is it that in my own home, in my own community, that I can't feel safe anymore? And this has happened over the last two years really where we're, we don't feel safe and I think about my daughters and they're you know I'm raising them here and I'm scared for them and their safety the suspect a 25 year old black male has now been officially charged with burglary and murder as you can see, this area is taped off. The victim walked through this doorway here, up six flights of stairs to her home where she was murdered. NYPD has apprehended the suspect and the murder is under investigation. Security experts say that if you do have to walk at night, try to walk in groups and stay in well-lit areas. And also be aware of your surroundings. Jason Perry, NTD News, New York. The Super Bowl's given people a lot to talk about, but not all of it's about the game or the halftime show. Many celebrities were seen unmasked at what was supposed to be a masked event. This has critics of the mask mandate decrying rules for me, but not for thee. NTD's Miguel Moreno has the story. Everyone was supposed to be masked at the Super Bowl, but that's not what the cameras witnessed. Celebrity after celebrity maskless in what Los Angeles County considers a mega event. That means the mask can come off only when you're actively eating or drinking. Critics of the masking violations noted that celebrities get away with what children cannot. And at this point, uh, the, the only people that are continuing to be masked are the kids who are the most resilient to this virus. 
Sharon McKeeman is the founder of Let Them Breathe, a children's advocacy organization that supports parental choice on masks and opposes mask mandates in schools. We could see some celebrities at the Super Bowl maskless violating the state's mask mandate, but in the same state, students are being suspended or punished in some way uh, because they're maskless in school. So some are calling this a double standard. Where do you stand on this issue? Well, it's been a double standard for quite some time, and it's just been made more evident uh, by the fact that no mask rules were enforced at SoFi Stadium. So maybe these students uh, should just follow the governor's example and follow the Super Bowl rules. <laughs> Obviously, if people can enjoy a ball game maskless, it's even more important for students to be able to engage with their faces uncovered uh, at school. Uh, they need to be able to see their teachers and their peers' facial expressions. And we're seeing uh, students all over the state uh, peacefully unmask. And we have been at Let Them Breathe. We have been supporting them uh, legally for quite some time and just making sure they're aware of what their rights are. California is set to lift its indoor mask mandate on Tuesday. But like New York and Illinois, the mandate will remain for schools. Also seen maskless at the game was the Cincinnati mayor and many audience members. A picture of a maskless L.A. Mayor Garcetti is floating around on social media, but to his credit, he appears to be holding a beverage. Miguel Moreto, NTD News. D.C. residents no longer have to show proof of vaccination to enter most businesses. Mayor Muriel Bowser announced today that she's dropping the vaccine passport requirement. Um, beginning tomorrow, February 15th, um, as you know, the public health emergency, the limited public health emergency that I put in effect in December um, expires, uh, as will the requirement for indoor venues uh, to verify that patrons are vaccinated. She also said that the mask mandate for indoor public spaces will be lifted beginning March 1st. The city introduced the restrictions as Omicron cases began surging in November and December last year. Masks will still be required on public transit and in some communal spaces, such as schools and emergency shelters. And up next, the FBI is offering $10,000 for any information that leads to the arrest of a serial bank robber. He's considered armed and dangerous. The Super Bowl champions and the games that paid off how they'll be paying for this championship for the next two years. That and more here on NTD News. The FBI is asking for your help. And in return, you could get paid thousands of dollars. An armed and dangerous bank robber is on the run in the Northeast. And law enforcement is looking for information that could lead to his arrest. This is the man the FBI is looking for. They call him the Route 91 bandit. He's robbed at least 11 banks in New England over the past five months. All of the banks were along U.S. Route 91, hence the nickname. He has tried to get to the vault and he has interacted significantly with the employees of the bank. So we just want to stop this before uh, something bad could happen. The FBI is offering a reward of up to $10,000 for information leading to identification, arrest and conviction. He's about 5'6 to 5'8, medium build, with blue eyes and light-colored hair, typically wearing a hoodie or hat and white sneakers. He may be driving his newer model Nissan sedan. Route 91 stretches from New Haven, Connecticut to the U.S.-Canada border. Today in New York City, all five borough presidents teamed up in a bipartisan effort, calling on Mayor Eric Adams to plant more trees in the Big Apple. And TD's Chenny Wu has more for us. Here at City Hall Park, New York City's borough presidents announced their vision to plant one million trees across the city in the next decade, calling on Mayor Eric Adams to adopt their plan. The initiative follows in the footsteps of a similar program started under former Mayor Mike Bloomberg and completed under Mayor Bill de Blasio, where the city planted more than a million trees in just eight years. We want this program to be even bigger and better and more efficient. Trees can absorb stormwater and carbon dioxide, contributing to less flooding and better air quality. Urban forests can also keep summer temperatures in the city several degrees lower through shading and returning humidity to the air. 
New York City currently has about 7 million trees, with roughly 22 percent of the city covered by tree canopy. The goal is to increase that number to more than 8 million by 2030 and increase the tree canopy to 30 percent by 2035. But how much will it cost? We are projecting $500 million. It costs a lot of money to plant a tree, for example, on the street in Manhattan, that would be about $4,000 because you might have to create the tree pit. Um, but in some parts of the city, it's very inexpensive. In natural areas um, where you don't have to create a tree pit, it can be only $200. Manhattan Borough President Mark Levine says he believes the plan can be completed with on average $500 per tree. New York City can't just be concrete. New York City needs an urban forest. Every city does. If the program is a success, residents and visitors of New York City might just see a greener Big Apple. Chenny Wu, NTD News, New York. The Rams are Super Bowl champions. And though flags fly forever, it may have come at a significant cost to their future. NTD's Dave Martin has more. The Rams won Sunday with a team that was built to win now while gambling plenty of their future to do so. The gamble paid off. Just eight months after L.A. lost Super Bowl 53 to the Patriots, they traded two first-round picks to get Jalen Ramsey, who's now a three-time All-Pro. The 2020 picks sent to Jacksonville could have landed them Pro Bowl receiver Justin Jefferson or All-Pro running back Jonathan Taylor. And it's too early to tell what stars could have been had with the 25th pick this past year. Though Ramsey was a great pickup two years ago for the defense, the offense wasn't up to head coach Sean McVay's standards. So they gambled again last offseason and traded two more first-round picks and a third-rounder to bring in the 34-year-old Matt Stafford. Stafford was an immediate upgrade over the younger Jared Goff, yet still halfway through the season, the Rams felt they needed more on defense, so they then doubled down again and traded a pair of future second-round picks for three-time All-Pro linebacker Vaughn Miller, who's 32. All three played a part in Sunday's win. Stafford somehow got the ball to a double-teamed Cooper Cup repeatedly on their game-winning drive. Miller sacked Burrow twice, and Ramsey, though he was officially burned on a missed call, was still a difference maker in the secondary. All this means is that in two years, Stafford and Miller will likely be past their primes, while the team will be severely hampered by having no first or second round picks. But they'll have that Super Bowl ring. 20 years ago, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers made a similar move, taking two first-round picks and two second-round picks for Coach John Gruden. They immediately won the Super Bowl, and then six years later, fired Gruden. Dave Martin, NTD News, New York. Up next, American and Canadian hockey players are competing on the Chinese team in the Beijing Olympic Games. And they refuse to comment on whether or not they're naturalized as Chinese citizens. And at least 100 million people in China have taken a CCP virus test. One of them even did the test 90 times. It's become a huge industry, but who profits from it the most? More on that in a moment, here on NTD News. less than a week left in the Olympics, Norway has racked up the most golds and medals overall, while the U.S. is in third on both counts. But the big story was the ruling handed down in court for figure skater Camilla Valieva. NTD's Dave Martin has more. Russian figure skating sensation Camila Valieva will be allowed to participate in the women's skating competition despite failing a drug test in December. The IOC says it will wait until her case has been concluded to have a medal ceremony, though, if Feliva, the favorite twin gold, places in the top three. The Court of Arbitration made the decision citing she had tested clean in Beijing. She's a 15-year-old minor and was subject to different rules than an adult athlete and noting the untimely notification of her positive test. Athletes under 16 have more rights under anti-doping rules and the focus of any future investigation will likely center on the people around her. Meanwhile, Team USA Monday picked up a gold and silver women's bobsleigh and a bronze in both figure skating and freestyle skiing. The women's hockey team is now guaranteed either silver or gold after beating Finland 4-1 to advance to the finals to play Canada. This marks the sixth time in seven Olympics that these two powerhouses are playing for gold, with Canada taking three of the first five. Team USA's men's ice hockey team, meanwhile, has advanced to the quarterfinals by sweeping their first three games. 
The team, of course, is playing without any NHL players and with an average age of 25 is the youngest in the field. Dave Martin, NTD News. More than half of China's Olympic hockey players are originally from somewhere else. But some are questioning why the mostly American and Canadian athletes are allowed to compete for Beijing at all. That's as one of them refuses to comment on his citizenship status. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has more on the details. Eileen Gu isn't the only Chinese athlete who has been questioned about her citizenship. China's Olympic men's hockey team is mostly made up of American and Canadian players. They usually play professionally in Russia, though during the Beijing Games they represented China. But the issue of Team China's very nationalities has raised some questions. That's because the International Olympic Committee dictates that competitors must be citizens of the country they represent, or if an athlete has two or more citizenships, they may choose to represent either of them. But there's another component. China does not recognize dual citizenship, meaning anyone who holds Chinese citizenship cannot hold allegiance to any other country. Because of China's rule, many are asking if these athletes gave up their original citizenships to compete for China. According to the Wall Street Journal, none of the bodies directly responsible for Team China's hockey squad, the Chinese Olympic Committee, the International Ice Hockey Federation or the International Olympic Committee will respond to questions about the team's large foreign contingent. Among China's 25-man roster, the most famous name is U.S.-born athlete Jake Chilios, son of National Hockey League legend Chris Chilios. Jack Chilios goes by the name Jackie Caliosi while playing for China. He and several of his teammates still have their American passports. When asked if he had naturalized as a Chinese citizen, he responded saying he's not supposed to comment on that. What's more, the International Ice Hockey Federation rules that before competing for a new country, an athlete who changed citizenship status must participate for at least two consecutive hockey seasons and 16 consecutive months in the national competitions of the new country. Due to China's rigid pandemic policies, the team did not spend the 2020-21 or 2021-2022 seasons in China. Instead, they trained and played games in Russia later flying to Beijing on January 20th to join the Olympic Village ahead of the Games. Beijing says its strict virus testing requirements aim to completely rid China of COVID-19. But is that the only goal? A leaked audio clip reportedly capturing a conversation with a Chinese expert reveals a different take, that Chinese Communist Party leaders are driving it to bring in profit. Mass testing for COVID-19 has become a common practice in China. In just the last week, at least five cities in China began new rounds of testing, mandatory for all residents. That's after new CCP virus cases, which caused COVID-19, emerged locally. Even in Beijing's Olympics Village, thousands of athletes have had to take the tests daily or face being blocked from leaving their hotels. The strict testing practice is part of Beijing's zero cases policy, which seeks to completely eradicate all COVID-19 cases in the country. The testing aims to immediately detect any possible appearance of the virus, so it can be halted as soon as possible. But the policy has led to some extreme effects. Media outlets are now racking up reports of citizens who have been tested to the extreme. Reports are calling a ride-hail driver in southern China's Ruili City the country's most tested person. The New York Times reported the man has been tested 90 times within seven months, equivalent to three times a week. As for the most tested child, a baby, just a year and a half old from the same city, has been tested 74 times. But does China have other reasons for the large-scale test mandates? Expert Huang Wangsheng from China may hint at another option in a purported audio clip. Huang is a former scholar at Harvard University specializing in politics and sociology. The voice in the following recording is said to be Huang's. The off-the-record conversation was captured and put online. In the clip, the voice says one of the major motives behind China's zero-COVID policy is profit going on to say that a single company has earned $100 billion from the mass testing alone. It's later explained that many of the Chinese Communist Party's top officials and their business representatives are involved in the medical field. 
including both the virus testing industry and the vaccine development industry. But that's not all. Our country's leaders, business representatives, and their family members are involved in the mass testing business. As long as there are one or two cases, all residents in the entire region will be tested. What they want is the purchase amount of the testing kit, and this makes a profit. The recording adds that the concentration of power has led to a major problem. China's medical resources are mainly concentrated in large hospitals, meaning those facilities quickly become overburdened amid the pandemic. The other member of the conversation chimed in at this point, saying this problem is getting huge and that health problems have become political problems. This recording has been circulating online since the beginning of the month. It's triggered heated discussion, though neither Huang nor Chinese authorities have offered comment. But one post from Chinese social media platform WeChat has caught attention after the fact. It claims Huang isn't pleased the recording was posted online. Coming up in Brussels, motorists who are part of a freedom convoy coming from France gathered in parks around the Belgian capital as police prevented them from entering. Protesters also took to the streets of The Hague. And cars, camper vans, tractors and other vehicles in the convoy arrived at the French capital over the weekend. Some managed to slip through police checkpoints, snarling traffic around the Arc de Triomphe. There was a heavy police presence around the EU headquarters in Brussels today as the Freedom Convoy, which set off last Wednesday from southern France, made its way into the city. Authorities feared a repeat of the disruption that happened in Paris over the weekend. The police reported that hundreds of vehicles gathered in car parks dotted around the city from early in the morning. NTD's Coast Temenis has more on this. Hundreds of vehicles were heading into Brussels on Monday as part of the Freedom Convoy, a protest against mandatory vaccinations and pandemic restrictions. Police gathered around the EU headquarters in anticipation of further disruptions following demonstrations in Paris over the weekend. Many vehicles coming from France spent the night on the outskirts of La Louvière in southern Belgium. Belgian supporters provided food and supplies. We don't know each other at all, but we plan together on social media. And we said to ourselves, we have to do something to welcome them, to thank them for their bravery and their movement, which is really magical and I think historic. A group known as Netherlands Resist organized a march through The Hague on Saturday and Sunday to show solidarity with the Freedom Convoy. This protester said they are living in a police state now, and that is not a good life. We want to move freely, and that's why we're here, for us and for our children and our grandchildren. Protesters gathered in Malivelt Park before marching to the Dutch Parliament. Police officers were present after truckers blocked roads on Saturday. Costa Menes, NTD News. French protesters in cars, camper vans, tractors and other vehicles attempted to enter Paris this weekend. But thousands of police officers stood in the way of the Freedom Convoy, which was inspired by the Canadian trucker protests. Some vehicles managed to breach police defences and drove into central Paris, snarling traffic. Protesters denounced Covid restrictions and declining standards of living. And police used tear gas on some protesters. NTD's David Vives has more from Paris. Inspired by lorry demonstrations in Canada, French motorists descended on Paris this weekend. Protesters in cars, camper vans, tractors and other vehicles drove from the south of France without much hope to get into the French capital. The Freedom Convoy was met with thousands of police, armored personal carriers and water cannon trucks. I think we'll be forced to turn back and leave. This protester says she came to protest against the dictatorship. 
Honestly, we're fed up. It's been two years and we know we're fed up. The people are suffering and we don't understand anything. There are laws, but we don't understand them. There's no more freedom, no more freedom. Whatever you think about it, we can't do what we want to do. We can't go where we want to go. You need to ask for permission. People not only protested against COVID restrictions, but also the increase of prices, including petrol, which has set a new record over the last weeks. Inside the capital, some demonstrators were getting prepared to welcome the convoy. According to lawyer Fabrice Devizio, the COVID measures taken by the government show signs of a totalitarian regime. About this freedom convoy, I think there's a little risk. I understand all this anger that arises in society and the people being fed up against price hikes. I respect that. But this has always existed. Today we have a problem. Today we have a big issue. This is this vaccine pass, because this will make our civilization change forever. This is our number one issue. Police blocked about 500 vehicles from entering the city, but some managed to get through checkpoints in central Paris, snarling traffic around the Arc de Triomphe monument. Motorists waved French flags and honked in defiance of a police order not to enter the city. Meanwhile, up to 3,000 people, including some yellow vest protesters, marched in a separate authorized demonstration in Paris against COVID restrictions. Police threw tear gas grenades to disperse protesters. Tensions between police and demonstrators seem to reach new height, according to testimony shared on social media. In Paris, a policeman drew his gun and aimed it at the driver of a car because they refused to stop. In another video, we see an officer snapping a French flag away from a protester. These scenes went viral on social media, and maybe that's what will be remembered of the day when the Freedom Convoy almost made it to the French capital. David Dives, NTD News, Paris. If you live in a large city, you may have gotten ads for fast grocery delivery services such as Getter and Gorillas. These companies have brick-and-mortar distribution centers but don't offer in-store shopping. Instead, they only fulfill online deliveries. While this is a relatively new kind of business model, these so-called dark stores are now available in dozens of countries. A Dutch freeze on dark stores is being watched closely in Europe, just as fast grocery delivery services try to scale up to meet demand. At issue are complaints of disruption and nuisance. Lucy Fielder has more. Venture capitalists have invested billions of dollars in fast grocery delivery services such as Turkey's Getir and Germany's Gorillas and Flink in a race to meet soaring demand after lockdowns. Now Amsterdam and Rotterdam have slapped a one-year freeze on new so-called dark stores and other cities could follow. At issue are the hundreds of small distribution hubs for on-demand groceries, where workers zip in and out on scooters, prompting complaints of disruption and nuisance complicating the loss-making company's efforts to scale up and become profitable. Like Getir, founded in Istanbul in 2015, which raised more than $1.1 billion in capital last year. General manager for Europe, Berke Yaja, said the company had created 1,500 Dutch jobs so far. If a freeze to be continued for a whole year and so on, obviously it's a young industry that's growing. It will affect our ability to serve our customers in the best way. And we also create a lot of jobs in the neighborhood at local level uh, that will obviously affect that uh, industry's growth uh, with employment creation too. Other cities could imitate the freeze on dark stores. In the sort of challenge Uber and Airbnb have faced in Europe, Amsterdam's deputy mayor, Marika van Dornink. We also took the comparison with Airbnb and we noticed as a city government we were quite late in our response and the nuisance in the neighbourhoods and the annoyance was already so big that we didn't have lots of instruments to actually do something about it. So with this new development with uh, the dark stores we decided to not wait till everybody was angry but to make this, this, this pause, to make this break in order for us to be able to make a policy because we have seen the negative effects of these new economies entering our city. Complaints include restocking and delivery going on 24 hours a day, as well as traffic hazards from racing scooters. The three largest fast grocery companies in Amsterdam, Flink, Gorillas and Getir, all pointed to customer satisfaction with their services. They say they want to work with city officials to resolve the problems. Solutions that may hurt already thin margins 
would be operating during restricted hours or making extra space for couriers and their vehicles inside the tiny stores. The one-year freeze, coming just after the companies received huge amounts of capital, could torpedo their efforts to grab market share. Coming up, we travel to Venice to see a selection of decadent and imaginative Italian chocolates, including some made with edible gold leaf. And an adorable pair of penguins will soon star in a children's book. That's after a viral video showed them exploring the empty halls of an aquarium during the pandemic lockdowns. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Lovebirds are commemorating Valentine's Day at Times Square in New York. They remind us to take a moment to celebrate our loved ones. Here's more from the crossroads of the world. Monica and Moses were visiting from San Antonio. They got married at Times Square on Valentine's Day. They say they like the place, but that's not the only reason they chose it. We know that we are honoring her right now. That's We're honoring her. She's not able to, to do it. She's no longer with us, and so uh, we lost her in August, and so we really wanted this to be about her, too. Their daughter took her life in August. Monica says this is a bittersweet day for her. New York City saw temperatures below freezing. How does that make for an outdoor wedding? It's shaking right now. I am. Just trying to... <laughs> but, um... We actually want to get married in the cold. We did, and so this was kind of like the snow yesterday was awesome. The wedding took place near Bloom, a new art installation in Times Square. Every year around Valentine's Day, artists design a new heart, and this year it's Bloom. We thought about maybe creating something that looks like a cloud from um, walking um, far away into the sculpture, but once you're inside, we wanted to encourage people to look up. Bloom was unveiled on February 9th and will be in Times Square through March 9th. Chocolates are a traditional Valentine's Day gift, but nothing can beat chocolates decorated with gold leaves for that special someone. That's what we see in one of the most romantic cities in the world, Venice, Italy's home of love. NTD's Neil Woodrow has the story. Few places in the world are as romantic a Valentine's Day location as Venice, a labyrinth of waterways and streets in which to lose yourself, gondolas that silently glide you through the water. But what would Valentine's Day be without posh chocolate? And there is plenty to choose from. The owner of this shop says chocolate is in everyone's imagination. It is exciting, it is satisfying in all senses, and for Valentine's Day, there is nothing better than a box of chocolates or something that can fill your heart and soul. The most sought after and precious gifts she sell are the gold leaf creations. In the days leading up to Valentine's Day, the pastry chef gently places gold leaves in heart-shaped molds, pours chocolate over them and then chills them to make the little chocolate box. Venice is the home to what is the last Batioro in Italy, where they create gold leaf for artistic, cosmetic and culinary uses. It is hard work to obtain a suitable gold leaf. It is necessary to incessantly beat a small gold ingot between 50 minutes to two hours with a small hammer. The chocolate boxes they create can then be filled. We can fill with anything, from our pralis that we make all year round. But in this period, they are obviously heart-shaped with different types of ganache. Or with gifts that customers bring us like a ticket to a concert, or a pair of earrings, or a jewel. This tourist is very happy to be here with his partner. It was fun, it was really fun, it was really rom romantic and just brilliant, because it's the best place here, flowers. <laughs> Continuing the Valentine theme further south in Italy, they are celebrating the 100th anniversary of Baci Perugina, the world-renowned hazelnut chocolate that contains a love note under its wrapper to this day. Barchi, meaning kisses in English, were created in 1922 by Luisa Spagnoli, an innovative entrepreneur. 
While Alberto Farinelli, master chocolate maker, shows how to make bachi by hand in the Perugina Chocolate School, a short distance away, production is on a much larger scale. Fashion brand Dolce & Cabana has even collaborated with Bachi Perugina to create a 100-year celebration collection and a limited edition recipe. Meanwhile, life in Perugina revolves around the famous chocolate and its many chocolate stores. There is even a restaurant called Baccio on the high street. Neil Woodrow, NTD News. And an inseparable pair of penguins at the Chicago Shedd Aquarium are about to star in a children's book. A video of the penguins, affectionately known as Edward and Annie, went viral. It shows them exploring the aquatic world of sea animals at the aquarium in the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020. The companions quickly rose to celebrity status. Let's take a look. With the aquarium closed to visitors, the empty halls were an adventure awaiting the waddling duo to visit some of their fellow inhabitants. They go on field trips and we take them all around the aquarium, which is kind of what spurred their, their stardom uh, being out and about uh, in the aquarium during the pandemic. The wandering birds brought a silver lining to their virtual audience during quarantines and a cycle of lockdowns. Trainers have said that the birds' freedom to roam has been beneficial for their own welfare, too. They have even visited another Chicago celebrity, Sue the Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton at the nearby Field Museum. Needless to say, Edward and Annie's notoriety has only just begun. A book titled Edward and Annie, A Penguin Adventure is slated to hit shelves next month. It wasn't on my mind like this should be a children's book, um, but it brought, I know, so much joy to me personally, to my family, to so many people that I think it made sense to, to go that direction. The birds will be central characters of the book as it highlights the challenges and fun when embarking on new adventures. The book does talk a little bit about how sometimes new things that are different can be a little scary, um, but exciting at the same time, and I hope that, that our readers take that to heart. New things can sometimes be a little scary, but tap into that sense of adventure and give it a try. The book will go on sale March 1st. A portion of proceeds will benefit the penguins at the Shed Aquarium and conservations for penguins in the wild. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.